Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 79. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Joining us this week is our friend Killian Riano to talk with us about gaming, our editorial theme for August here on ArcNext. Killian, it's great to have you back on. Yeah, it's great to be with you again. Thank you for the invitation. So this whole month on ArcConnect, we've been exploring different ways that games and gaming can either help inform architecture or are used by architects to better understand their practice and the world that they're practicing in. And so we've been covering a lot of different aspects of this, everything from how Monopoly and the Olympics relate to these kinds of game city building environments, and even something like how an architecture firm is using concepts of game theory to relate to their own practice and how they can better run a firm using elements of that study. So Killian, we wanted to invite you on the podcast at the end of this month while we're kind of wrapping up this theme because so much of your work as in practice, in education, and also just in your work with the architecture lobby has these elements of role-playing and gaming to not only better understand your own role as an architect, but also the role of different stakeholders in cities and architectural process. So your piece will have gone on Archonnect the same day that this podcast airs. So let's just dive right into it. Can you kind of give us an intro to the piece that you wrote for us? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, again, thank you for the invitation. And the pieces I look at, uh, at at a couple of things. First, the inspirations and things that have inspired me uh, to see games role playing. Uh, they create uh, design not as a, as a final product, but rather a set of loose rules that people can play with. The things that have inspired me to get there, and, I, and there are two main inspirations. One is art based, is uh, Soluit's wall drawings, in which he, instead of uh, producing the art piece himself, gives the rules by which other people applied, and then Theater of the Oppressed, which uh, theorized by Paulo, uh, Paulo Augusto Boal. Uh, I was thinking of Paulo Fieri, the pedagogy of the oppressed, but uh, Augusto Boal, which allows people to replace situations as a way to understand better the systems, the political and social systems that have caused them, as well as role-play potential futures. Those usually are uh, in political situations. I mean, uh, the, the name says it all. It's about the oppression that is created. And and the second part is a few examples of the kind of games that I'm proposing that I have been working with through either myself or through education, really encouraging students to see games as a potential final product in, the, in their studios or with, like you said, with the architecture lobby. So, so yeah. And then I try to group it into a few ways in which that games can be helpful uh, for practice. Uh, do you want me to go through that now? Actually, we'll get to that in a little bit. We can delve a little bit deeper. But let's actually first, because at least in my anticipation of setting out this theme, I thought that there might be, there might require a little bit of legwork to just kind of get a general audience behind the idea that something simple like a board game really could be used in a truly critical practice of architecture. But so I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork first by getting the session's co-host to kind of chime in about their experience with games and architecture and what any kind of instance of those two worlds kind of intersecting to better understand architecture. So Donna, you were talking a little bit about an early experience you had. Can you tell us a little bit about that? My first thought about games, gaming or playing a game as related to architecture was the experience that I know many, many architecture students have had of putting yourself into the role of someone who is other-abled. So when I did this at my school, we had groups of five people and everyone was given one, uh, handicap is the word that comes to mind, although I know that's not the word we should be using right now, but an ability like wearing a blindfold, using a wheelchair, not having graspability within your fingers, you know, all 
things that would make you negotiate physical space differently. And we had to get from point A to point B across the campus in groups, helping one another. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of Killian's article, one of the things he talks about this role playing, how the games can be and the theater of the press can be a, a connection to role playing. And that gives you, you know, role playing by wearing a blindfold, it puts you into the role of someone who you are not. And I think that's one of the great things as empathetic designers that we have to be able to do. So I loved that we were presented it as a challenge and a game of get your group across the campus, you know, in this given amount of time, and then talk about that experience of navigating the built world in this different role. Ken, what about you? Um, as I mentioned in, in our previous uh, our conversations and previous discussion, I, I've been reading this book about man and play. So I've been interested in games for a long time and how to bring that into architecture. But I did have an experience here in Minneapolis where I went to a conference where Jane uh, McConaughey was uh, speaking. And she advocates for using uh, gaming to solve real life problems. And one of the ones uh, that we she discussed uh, was a site that she was building called A World Without Oil. And it was asking us to think critically but using the idea of a game to actually solve problems after peak oil and how it would affect our daily lives. And so we were, we were, um, you know, conference of a few hundred people and thinking about, you know, uh, what would happen and to try to solve those problems. How would you, like the one uh, that got picked from the group that was evaluating it was the one I proposed where emergency services uh, in a world without oil. So you start to look at what, how those, um, it's not, you know, again, it's not really related to architecture, but it kind of solves a uh, kind of urban problems. But to think about how would you solve emergency services if peak oil happened? And then what would be the the urban intervention to kind of solve those issues. What is uh, McGonagall's title? What exactly is? Is she also an architect? She's not an architect. It's a good. That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure what her job specifically is. We'll we'll strike it from the record and we'll just go straight yeah. to Paul. <laughs> Paul, what about you? What about your experience with games? Well, probably my earliest experience with games and how they relate to architecture is probably from when I was uh, a kid playing. One of my favorite games of all time, Marble Madness on the Commodore 64. I don't know if any of you guys have ever even heard of Marble Madness. <laughs> I, don't think I will have. raise my hand and say I have not heard of this. So please, huh, for, on okay. behalf of myself and the listeners, please explain. Okay, well, basically, I mean, it's a really simple game. All my favorite games, I'm, I'm not really much of a gamer in a video game sense. I like the simple games like Tetris and and uh, games like that. But this game is, is a simple, three-dimensional, isometric world where basically a marble is just moving down this uh, this like kind of elaborate structure just due to the force of gravity. So it really makes you it really makes you aware of the the verticality of this of this space and how the force of gravity is kind of affecting movement through through this um, really simple kind of three dimensional grid. And um, yeah, you just have to kind of get the marble down and without falling off the edge into the abyss wherever wherever those marbles went this uh, is actually whatever the age difference i played this game in reality like i had a, well, a, yeah. a, 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 a box that you'd had these tiles yeah, on yeah the they side had the, they had the boxes the too this was a little bit more interesting because the boxes are not actually three-dimensional though are they it's just that you have to move it. You you move it by you by only tilting. have two axes. To so movement. this yeah. yeah. So this is actually this three dimensional world that I mean, it looks like it kind of looks like just like a grid a gridded castle that that just kind of is floating in space. But yeah, from there I I ended up constructing my own, like trying to make my own like real world marble madness mazes, and I think that's kind of what started my my appreciation of three dimensional design. 
And it's quite beautiful, actually, Marble Madness. I, I, I remember kind of the grid is kind of, it's some crazy super studio-like landscape that just happens to have ramps and it's quite beautiful. <laughs> very super studio. Yeah, very, very early 80s style graphics, you know, with the thick line weights and the, the simple, simple grids. But I mean, I love that kind of stuff. One imagines how many architectural projects have been created out of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you put yourself in the role of the marble. You have to be the stakeholder <laughs> of the marble. How about you, Amelia? Well, at the risk of being self-serving, it seems too appropriate for this conversation to not mention that a few years ago, actually, when I first started Arconnect, we went to participate in a the first ever Los Angeles biennial at the Biennale of Architecture and Urbanism in Shenzhen with Orhan and Sarah Lorenzen and a bunch of other people. And Paul and I went as well to participate. And I contributed this project around Los Angeles ur urbanism that was delivered as a game, starting from these early conversations about how to represent Los Angeles urbanity at all um, in any type of like critical art project. It just seemed really counter intuitive and, and not to the point to deliver any finished project at all, given LA's current weirdness and kind of evolution happening at the moment. So it seemed like games, something interactive, something not necessarily static and something that would never have the same end result seemed like a perfect way to convey whatever ideas we had at the time about the city in particular. So my partner, Honest, and I have created this game board that was really never capable of being played like an actual game. We tried to play it like an actual game and there were rules and player sets and identities and everything, incentives, but it turns out building an actual working game that is not only didactic, but actually fun to play is incredibly difficult, um, <laughs> which I definitely underestimated the ease at which it would be to just make something that works. But that was like one of the first times that I really thought very critically and very deeply about the relationship of um, a city structure and like the political entities and the power structures that go into building a city and how you could map those onto a game structure and force different players into those positions to kind of lay out those ideas and force them to engage with them. And I've just been thinking about it ever since. And I've been really happy that we've uh, decided to do this theme on our connect to kind of explore these ideas a little bit more. Um, and Killian, your piece is just so great because it attacks these opportunities or it takes these opportunities for involving gameplay in architecture from so many different avenues. And not once is there something that is just about gamifying something, which I think is a really important distinction that you're actually, the stuff that you're, that you discuss in the article is about creating games to model different structures, not simply create kind of false incentives in the real world for people to do things that then they don't stick with outside of that game structure. So actually, why don't we start first with, could you tell us a little bit about the work with, that you do with Architecture Lobby? specifically using the theater of the oppressed model? Because I think that's something really fascinating I'd like to hear more about. Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I wanted to just share, as Donna was describing the game that she was most uh, kind of interested in, it reminded me, I in the last uh, few graduate urban design studios that I've taught, I brought in an, a theater of the oppressed uh, trainer and performer. Uh, her name is Kay Hanirani, uh, to give us all a lesson. And one of the games she has us play to try to understand uh, the role of space and kind of even a little bit of power dynamics is she makes us all close our eyes and then have a partner and you have to follow that partner uh, with sounds and and it, it, it both makes you more aware of the space you're in 
and the power dynamics. Uh, so just to, to go over, and I think that the, very straightforwardly, the, the architecture lobby piece that you're talking about, it was a collective effort by many, many, many people that happened right around the same time as the Chicago Biennale at the uh, Prosperity Sphere in Chicago. And what we did is we took the 10 points of the architecture lobby's manifesto and we created a small little scene, a large group, uh, and then the piece has the video which has all the credits on it with illustrating a moment in typical architectural practice or, or education that had to do with that point. So for example, uh, the one about unpaid internships, someone we began with, with uh, the role playing a small little scene of what it's like to be an unpaid intern. What we used there, what the inspiration for that performance it was the forum theater, which is one in which someone, you know, a group of people create a script, short usually, and you play it. Then you invite the, the, the people that came to see it. And I, and I say that in an awkward way because this kind of theater does not say, really make a distinction between a spectator and audience, but rather it looks at everyone as an aspect actor. Then the aspect actors that didn't play the original piece come up and replay that that moment bringing in their own experiences. And then through that playing and replaying of the scene, you begin to learn a little bit more about the conditions in which uh, whatever uh, whatever thing is, is is happening under. So that's something that we did. We did that 10 times over two days, uh, each time about half an hour. The other key ingredient in this is, is what they call a joker, uh, which has a much beautiful, more beautiful name in Portuguese. What is it in Portuguese? I can't pronounce it, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not even going to try because... Okay. All my all my Brazilian friends are gonna get upset, but uh, so the, this person really uh, guides the conversation, helps people bring their experiences, and, and turns it into from a from a performance into something in which we all are discussing. And the point here is not necessarily to come up with final solutions to instrumentalize, uh, but rather to have an ongoing discussion about the larger system, some things that can be done, and then to continue to test those things. Are people in the theater of the oppressed spect actor model, are they usually, does it take some convincing to get them into the active role playing and like actually taking it as a serious exercise? You know, I think maybe at the beginning it does. It's kind of like when you ask questions uh, for questions at the end of a lecture, you know, that, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. But my experience has been, and, I, and I've seen it done a few times, uh, I even part of my, my teaching at Parsons, I've worked closely with a troupe that does this kind of theater and has been doing it for 30 years in Medellin, Colombia. Uh, they're called La Corporación Cultural Nuestra Gente. And they, they're now doing urban planning. And one of the things we were working with them was trying to figure out how to use those, those systems to create create urban plans and urban designs and, and create form uh, ultimately. But anyway, so at first it takes maybe a little bit, but I think, and I think that this is an important moment to maybe begin to describe games because why is a theater a game, right? And, and I think maybe one thing that I see is whether it's a, a board game or this kind of role-playing that we've all been talking about or the, the experience that Donna describes is, is that it takes you maybe out of your, your comfort level, out of the thing you see every day and maybe allows you, gives you the room to see that in a different perspective. So I don't know, maybe we can begin to talk about that that way. So once people begin to understand that this is an opportunity to kind of role play and play things differently, my experience has been that people are extremely enthusiastic to participate. 
So, Killian, one of the, the projects you, you mentioned in the article was the, uh, I think it's the Agenda Engine, where you have people dealing with a overlay business improvement district. And you have students and people play different roles. Did you ever find someone, this is, cause I can imagine this would be me. You know, I'm the like, if I'm typically sort of a tree hugger and I would never be a greedy developer, did you find people saying, hey, I want to try playing the greedy developer because I I would not be that person. Like, I want to try playing this thing that I know I'm not and then find some empathy with that character? Yes. I mean, that game was interesting. That was produced by uh, four students in, in a graduate uh, urban design or design and urban ecology studio. I taught here at Parsons in, in Manhattan. Then Dimitra, Kartik, Basum, and Mateo. And it, the, this game was designed and actually was very much, as, it, it actually came out because the students observed that in this community, people were collecting soccer albums and there, were, there was already kind of a game going on. And then a lot of the conversation around Monopoly, which, you know, our Connect has written about and, uh, you know, uh, people we've been talking about it. So there were two ways this game was designed to do to be played two ways. One way would be the way a typical business improvement district is created. Uh, you role play it. So the same way that you collect the, the little soccer players that, that was around the World Cup. So that's why it was even important at the time. You get to role play whether you want to, uh, and, and, uh, but the role playing here had a real kind of power distinction. So if you were a street vendor, the relative political power that you have was reflected with these little power chips that you would get. If you were a developer that owned a lot of land, then that was the reflected. So we would play the, the way that that would happen to try to reflect the reality. With this, this, the team that produced the game, I actually got them to go to LaGuardia Community College and, and, uh, and with some students there, we really tested the game. And then we went and played it in Jackson Heights. To answer your question after explaining the game, yes, people love the activists wanted to be the developers and they were cutthroat they like they weren't even nice developers they were going for the jugular at almost every turn they were like it was actually kind of really interesting and we would actually because again they, this game also had a little bit of the joker or the facilitator which to me becomes really important because i think that becomes a little bit of the role of the designer or the architect it goes from author to facilitator and i think that distinction actually is one of the things that makes the this kind of role games and role playing key. And often I, I would play that role or one of the students. And having this conversation was actually really interesting about why people not only wanted to cherish the, the, the role of being the developer or being the council person or being the bid director, the business improvement district director, but also it got us trying to understand what that means to try to create collaboratives, etc. The second part of the game was then to play it in a way in which power was shared more equally. So that's also a very much mm -hmm. harkens to the original uh, Monopoly game. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this today um, at work and the things I come back to about games are two. First, whenever I play um, board games or pretty much any game that has really lengthy instructions from Scrabble to Monopoly, I almost never read the instructions and I play in how I remember playing it as a kid. So inevitably, my rules that I've constructed in my head are agreed to by everybody else at the table, but they're never conforming to the rules that are written. And then I think about warfare. For ages, we've had a kind of a mutually agreed upon rules of combat. But now we've entered into an age where asymmetrical warfare happens, where the other party is a non-state actor and they're not going to agree to the same terms of how we fight one another. So they're going to have their own kind of 
their own rule structure. Can you insert that? I mean, when I think about people playing the kind of games you're talking about, they're almost playing, a, they're playing the systems game. Is there a way to reconstruct or rewrite the rules so that they can look for or cause disruptions in the system so that maybe there's loopholes that weren't intended, but you know, maybe smaller groups can see them and, and uh, affect change more aggressively? Or they have to abide by the, the zoning and the building codes and the community standards and the overlay districts? Or is that kind of the intent to work within the system or try to work and try to figure out where the bugs in the system are? I think the, the reality is that, like you're saying, it falls somewhere in the middle. So with especially going back to Agenda Engine, Agenda Engine was an extremely complex game because it tried to teach, usually in a bilingual manner, a very complex, you know, seemingly kind of uh, simple but very complex piece of policy that has all kind of spatial and cultural and urban implications, the business improvement district. And the reality is that we often found that when we walked into most places, we had to get rid of the rules. It just didn't make sense because people were not abiding, uh, abiding to it. So we just uh, kind of, and this is again why the facilitator matters, because then the facilitator in this case is gave, gave, saw the situation and said, okay, we're, uh, explain, for example, the, the point here is maybe to do both things is explain, yes, we can do that, but just so we all know, this is the the, re, the way it, would, it could happen in reality. But for the sake of the game, we're going to allow it to continue, but with this caveat. So we often had to do that. And the other way, perhaps, and, and you know, in some of the, the more spatial, the, the kind of, for example, the housing project that I collaborated with Teddy Cruz and Simon Boussier on in Nicaragua, that game had simpler rules so that it, it expressly said it would be followed, not because of any uh, intent to kind of uh, control the, the game, but rather just for life safety. So that, uh, some of the, the things that we as designers and architects and urbanists care about, such as making sure the utilities, uh, that, that there's some economy in that could happen while allowing the people on the ground that will always know a little bit better to make those rules fit the, the, the condition at the moment. Killian, you're bringing this up and you're reminding me that one of the things that I think is also super cool about using games that are designed by the studio instructors in these kind of educational settings is not whether or not the games then work perfectly or give the students exactly the right idea or whatever it is supposed to be or or even convey anything necessarily, but that by enacting the game, the, the instructors or the people leading the studio can then see how those students are engaging with the game as a great indication of their other knowledge. So it's less about making a functioning game and more about running this kind of meta social science study around how people engage with the ideas and how they then react when they are given the power or lack of power through role-playing in a specific position that is different from themselves. So you kind of have this incredible opportunity to not just try out a specific kind of systems thinking or a specific kind of logic with architecture students, but also observing how they themselves engage with the game and see the game's rules as either a good indication of how things actually are, a poor indication, uh, a constructive one, ones that they feel totally entitled to break in however ways that they think are most useful to them. I think it's like such a fascinating opportunity to see how students not only relate to other rules and roles, but also how they relate to themselves as architects in these new scenarios where they have this freedom to kind of enact these ideas without the same supposed expectations of what it might be for them to get an A in the class or succeed in the class or whatever that might be. No, totally. I mean, and I, I just just to give it a little bit of of body to what you're saying. Last uh, spring, I taught it in Ottawa. <laughs> 
at Carleton University, and two students, uh, Matt and Matina, produced this game that quite honestly was, was just quite beautiful because it was a game all about spatial production. So at the end of the day, what the thing, the, you know, the things that were being produced almost hardly matter because of this, this idea. They had to take all the systems extremely seriously and they had so much fun. Everything from turning into, you know, part of our studio into a game, like into their board game. And we physically had to deal with it to then going back to, to the site, which again was in, in, in Jackson Heights, North Corona here in Queens to produce some of those conditions and seeing the students both. And, and we very, very consciously, we had these conversations about how that project almost was meta, was meta architecture school, where the tools that we are taught usually, we were making them available to a much broader kind of group of people and audience to envision potential futures. So the role of the student there becomes really kind of interesting because they become the student, the teacher, they begin to think about very self-consciously about the tools they know and how those could be made available to others. That was one of the most fun experiences I think I've had with seeing it. And I, and also it was fun because I had think the students went in with no idea that that's what they were going to be producing as their final project in a studio. Yeah, it totally runs kind of contrary to um, the, I think, the prevailing model of a lot of games that people have around what architecture or what urban planners might be interested in, like these city simulation games, which propose a kind of very, if if in the model of or tradition of SimCity or something, we're going to say that the way the cities are built are these incredibly top-down models where you are the the god character, the god player in the city simulation, and you set out everything onto the earth and then it interacts with itself, but you can always tweak things in different ways. So I love how this kind of subverts that model and gives a completely different, completely low-tech, completely analog and like theater-driven kind of model for figuring out how the those other systems can become part of the city and run the city. And also added the fact that you're enacting these programs in real areas, in areas where a lot of these people may live or traverse on a daily basis or just have some familiarity with that is completely non-abstracted, that is just literally there. Yeah. So that actually reminds me of something that we spoke about a little bit in some previous sessions when we were discussing topics of VR and AR and all these different exciting applications for urban planners and architects to use particularly VR technologies, and to try to better understand their own environments before they're actually built and just to become better designers. But also one aspect of that technology is the empathy factor, which we've talked a lot about here, which is just how do you force yourself into the position of other stakeholders in any given project? How do you not only see the world how they see it, but also how do you give them the only tools that they have in that situation to either, as Donna mentioned before, like walk through a space, whether that's walking or in a wheelchair or however, or whether it's you are a certain resident in a business improvement district who only has certain capabilities or rights with as a citizen living there and might not have the same power at their disposal as someone else or business owner in the area. So it's this idea of like, what is the best media to engage with these ideas? Is it the most effective way to do a theater of the, of the model where it's simply kind of a theatrical role-playing game or is from an actual empathy standpoint is it always going to be more convincing to have to put on a vr headset and walk around in a virtual space that fully immerses you in the reality of the other stakeholder so these are like these issues of like how different games can approach these ways that we're still that we're still figuring out and social scientists are still trying to really put a finger on of like what allows for the most empathetic potential yeah no totally so I had this this idea that uh, I'm working right now on a uh, I'm volunteering time to be on a sign ordinance revision task force for the city. So I'm working on how we're going to redo our 
sign ordinance. And the biggest topic that came up when we were in our initial meeting asked how, what's, what, do, what do we want to be an outcome of this task force was that ultimately the sign ordinance is something that's extremely difficult for people to understand. Whether you're, and one of the guys in the room was a lawyer who represents people for signs. And he was basically saying, yeah, I don't want you to put me out of a job, but in fact, the sign ordinance is extremely difficult to understand. So I had this idea that you could um, sort of write a citizen's guide that was like a, um, that was presented like a choose your own adventure novel. So the idea would be, you say, you know, you start with page one, are you a homeowner? Are you a small business owner? Are you a, you know, a seasonal contractor? All these different options. And then from there, you would sort of choose your adventure and it would lead you through what are the processes you have to go through to create a sign and get it legally approved. And my work with People for Urban Progress, we started very early on doing graphics that were supposed to help you navigate the process of the city. So you have an idea about trash pickup or about a broken sidewalk or whatever. Where do you go with that idea? And going back to this notion of low tech, I think that our our sort of default with civic services has been to say, oh, it's all on the internet now. But for a lot of people, and myself included, going to the internet, there's almost too many options to choose from. And I think this sort of low-tech graphic idea of winding your way through a a maze is actually one that people might be able to respond to, obviously, if the graphics are done well. So yeah, and I also just keep going back to the idea that you put a big big chess piece, a a life-size chess table out, and people sort of can't resist going out and moving those game pieces around. (laughs) So if you give them something very simple and a approachable looking, I feel like that's a way to engage people in trying to understand a much more complex process. Totally. I mean, the physicality still, I I think in a weird way, physicality has become more important, not less, especially when trying to just chat with a much broader group of people. It might be that the digital sometimes can be a very personal experience and the physical still requires a certain amount of of coming together or or something like that. And, and, you know, as you're talking about this, it reminds me something that I kind of have forgotten, that for a minute I was the unofficial Second Life (laughs) reporter for Arconnect. Many years ago. <laughs> I, I remember that, yeah. Oh my gosh. With some of the same ideas on how to like gamify Second Life as a way to t- like really bring people together. And that's hilarious because I never really thought about it. But when, as I moved to New York and began to actually, you know, put some of these ideas on the ground. And then quite honestly, as an architect, as an architector, the digital and social and all these aspects of it have always fascinated me. But when I got here, I began to understand that the physical is a way to to really begin to bring people together. The, the ideas might come, you know, in some ways, even some of these ideas of gaming are integral to computing. But one of the first things I did was actually a set of street signs that, that I always call low-tech virtual reality, just kind of edge diagrams for Corona Plaza. My first time in Corona, now all this work, including all this student work, has come out of that first thing, which was an interaction to try to talk to people that may not even speak the same language I do, although I'm bilingual and I can speak with a lot of people there. There's also a big Chinese, a big South Asian, a big community there. And the virtual reality, real thing that we put on real infrastructure really got us into really uh, to fascinating conversations. We we understood that site much better than we, uh, than we did before, even though we had done a lot of like research, census research. So yeah. I wish that we had something like Second Life today as as a strong of a cultural movement so that we could also get another phase of that Arconnect editor or that Arconnect uh, beat. <laughs> the, you got, you're on the Second Life beat or you're on the like 
Is completely there a third virtual. Life yet? Maybe going back to physical. <laughs> yeah. That's the third. Or, or I think virtual. I mean, I think that I think Second Life was maybe a little ahead of its time. I, I think we're waiting for the technology to catch oh, up. You know what? The 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 Pokemon. Mm. Maybe that's. Oh right. That's yeah. well. Yeah. That's something that is so funny that that just became kind of like the success where something like Google Glass was either too early or just too wonky or too silly or whatever that that couldn't push that that was like cramming AR down people's throats and no one wanted it. But now. Pokemon Go is like the biggest thing that has ever happened ever. They're they're playing it at Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. It's which is supposed to be a completely uh No tech, right? You can't have like But there are people playing Pokemon. So at I think we Man. can pronounce the death of Burning Man now. I think I think yeah, Burning I think Man so. is over. Or or yeah. Pokemon Go, I don't know. Yeah, yeah or just two. both of them. But I th- I think that Killian you're you're getting at this idea that as more supposed promise is pushed on the virtual space and that the the potentials of that being a perfect lived reality is kind of like too too much of a pie in the sky and that always there will be some desire and untapped potential in the physical space that people will always crave. And I think that like if for every, you know, way too optimistic saying, oh, everything will seamlessly transition into a virtual space and it won't, you know, it'll take us like five years. Everyone will get completely comfortable with being in that kind of thing. Of course, there will always be a desire for people to just like look at each other in the eyes. (laughs) But I think that the things that we've seen with uh, any type of game with this like kind of ability to assume a role and a position of power different from the one you might immediately have, the way that VR allows people to do that in a space where even if you're just enacting it in reality with no real repercussions, VR can put you in any reality with no real repercussions. So it's this like different way of trying to both not say it's more important or more has more potential than the actual reality, but that there are just things that we haven't figured out how to tap that potential yet that only can happen in VR. Okay, so uh, I was just going to mention about virtual reality versus augmented reality because uh, we're using it in a, in a, uh, as, as if they meant the same thing, but because I, I do think that there's a reason why Pokemon Go uh, actually made it. And, and I do think it's because of its augmented reality. It still focuses on the real, but even the interface. And one of the reasons I thought about it as, as Paul was talking is that, um, that it, the, the interface and the, and the landscape actually looks a lot like what Second Life used to look like. But imposing a digital over the real really ended up in, in a way bringing people together, not always for good. Although like, you know, people did what people do when they come together, everything from fight to, I don't know, to have sex, everything they did, it really opened up an interesting possibility. Yeah, it's not to say that people will stop being people or people will like be better or worse people because of a certain technology necessarily. There's just always different ways to to kind of get excited or get overly worrisome about it. I wonder if VR is, it just makes you look too silly. <laughs> I think it's just, it's just those, those Google. I mean, you guys see the Obama picture? He looks kind of funny. <laughs> well, you know, I think virtual reality is a very like, it's a very antisocial technology. I don't think it's meant to be really used in the presence of, of uh, too many other people. But yeah, I, I like that you brought up the distinction between augmented and virtual because they're both so, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but the um, the potential of each is so different and so huge, really. I mean, augmented reality is is just so exciting. I mean, the possibilities with that, which we've we've uh, covered a lot in uh, on our connect over the last few months. So, I think this game is coming to an end. I think the buzzer is about to uh, to go. On. Game over. Nobody loses in this game. <laughs> no. Yeah, we it's... didn't we didn't get to talk about that though. But that is an important distinction that we have to have an an objective or some kind of like. 
hierarchy of outcomes. But anyway, that's for another episode. Yeah, we'll we'll treat this like my six year old son's uh, soccer. Exactly, no participant winners. trophies no for winners. everyone. Yeah, Donna, do you have a last moment? I do. I do think that it it brings back this notion of the Joker, Killian, which I I you said that the Portuguese version of that word is much more nuanced than just the Joker. And I'm not sure that we, you know, the, that every culture would have the same understanding from from the word Joker. But the idea that someone has to be there who can sort of not only poke fun, but also be the fool, you know, also be the one who risks saying that thing that might sound ridiculous, but also actually then illuminates a, an idea that no one's willing to talk about yet or that, you know, that, that no one else has, has thought of or that everyone's too embarrassed to bring up. I think that if you're one of the things of yeah, trying to use gaming to understand each other better is that you can't be too embarrassed. You have to go ahead and, you know, put on the, the dumb virtual reality helmet and not worry about how you look at it. Um, or you have to be the joker, the person who can sort of poke fun at the whole at the whole process. That role is something that I enjoy playing more and yeah. more as I get and older. a good role for architects, quite honestly. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it keeps you neither here nor there. It, and, and in a way, it, it makes you uh, may, perhaps uh, a little more slippery, meaning that you're, you don't have to put all your cards on the table right away. But by asking questions, you can guide conversations in certain ways uh, and even design on spaces. So yeah, that's that that's completely the role that architects, I think, frequently have to take. Yes. All work and no play makes an architect <laughs> a boring person. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think that's it for this week. Thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, thanks, Quil uh, Killian, for joining us. I almost called you Quillian. So. You know, it's okay. Every once in a while, people will do it. but <laughs> I've never done it. No one in this crew has ever done no. it. No. So it's, yeah. <laughs> that makes me the loser in this game. Okay. Oh, so. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions you can reach us on twitter at our twitter account arc sessions or with hashtag arcnext sessions you can also send us an email to connect at arcnect.com and if you enjoy this podcast please consider rating us on itunes and stay tuned for monday we've got a a new one-to-one -one with uh kunle arayeme last week i was in chattanooga tennessee for their aia convention and i interviewed kunle as part of his keynote there and he gave a great interview about his time at princeton and in lagos with oma and all this incredible career that he's had relatively young still so so much more expected from him but yeah we recorded that conversation from chattanooga and so we'll bring that to you on monday excellent looking forward to that all right talk to everybody next week